Welcome back in the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you are doing quite well. We have another interesting guest today in the show, which is Philip Skogstart. He is the CEO of uh, Mercedes-Benz Research and Development in North America. Been building up the whole innovation system in the United States for Mercedes-Benz. Um, also very interesting backline story. So he did a Master's of Science in Engineering Design in um, at Stanford continued to do that with a PhD so did a PhD in engineering design um, was actually the deputy director of the Center for Research Design at Stanford as well after his um, after his studies or um, right in the middle of his um, PhD studies so he went further um, and became the vice president and chief of staff to the SAP chief design officer so he he was quite deep into everything related to people and change management and then actually moved to Mercedes-Benz to lead the whole research and development and innovation part in the United States um, and has been telling a lot of different and very interesting stories on how a company like Mercedes-Benz actually uses um, the logistics and the location of Sunnyvale in California, so close to Palo Alto, to build up innovation and to build up transformation within the company and uh, he, has, he has talked about how he uses the location in order to to talk to very young inspiring people but also use it as, as a chance to really build everything innovation related for Mercedes-Benz so I'm, I'm pretty sure you will enjoy it happy listening and uh, hopefully see you soon bye bye Welcome back in the Feed Your Brain podcast. My name is Max Elster and I'm happy to have another guest in the show. Um, it's actually a German that is currently based in Palo Alto in San Francisco and he's working for Mercedes-Benz. Um, to be concrete here, uh, he is the president and CEO at the Mercedes-Benz Research and Development Center in North America, uh, currently based, as I already mentioned, in S San Francisco. Uh, he has actually done his PhD in St at Stanford University, which is also very interesting to lots of my listeners. So we will probably have the chance to deep dive here as well. And um, I'm very happy to have you here, Philip Skogstad. Um, I'm already enjoying the pre-conversation, so happy to have you on the podcast and uh, good to have you here. Thank you, Max. Thank you for having me. Nice. Uh, maybe you can give a little background. Uh, you're currently in San Francisco. How is uh, how is life over there? Maybe you can give some insights into the German and English listeners. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so I'm uh, actually uh, in Sunnyvale, a bit of a suburb uh, between San Francisco and San Jose. Um, San Francisco, like you said, is the next major city here. Uh, this is the uh, center of Silicon Valley. It is also the headquarters of MBRDNA, Mercedes-Benz Research and Development North America. Mm -hmm. uh, I've uh, been in the Valley for the most part since 2003. So at this point, uh, some 16 years, uh, half of my life uh, pretty much here. And uh, still very much enjoy it. Uh, it's the, the inspiration uh, is uh, enormous. The, the, the uh, pressure, but in a positive way, is as well. Right. I can, uh, can totally imagine that. I mean, of course, the German listeners always have a look, especially in my community, uh, on what's happening over there, uh, over the Atlantic uh, in, in San Francisco. And I think it's very, very interesting to observe what's happening there in the technological space. And of course, we, we're going to deep dive, uh, we're going to deep dive further. Maybe for the listeners, um, can you give them a little background on where you come from, where you have grown up, how you actually become a technology enthusiast and um, how that has actually risen over the last, over the last decades, as you mentioned? Absolutely. Uh, so. Born and raised uh, in a small town called Starnberg, just outside Munich, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, did my schooling there and went to the US uh, for undergraduate university, um, studied mechanical engineering, uh, did undergraduate in St. Louis, Missouri, mm -hmm. so right in the heartland. Nice. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, then came out to uh, the Valley uh, to attend Stanford uh, starting in 2003. Did my master's there and PhD in mechanical engineering, uh, really focusing on design methodology, uh, what creates high performance teams, and mm -hmm. what is the role of experts and managers in supporting or um, prohibiting these teams from success. Mm -hmm. uh, and in between, I uh, took uh, leave from Stanford where I was building up a design thinking program at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland mm -hmm. uh, and uh, did an MBA there at the same time. Uh, and so that's the academic career uh, in terms of the uh, more um, commercial career, uh, had stints at uh, Volkswagen of America and product planning uh, at Webasto, uh, the automotive supplier uh, based near Munich, uh, as well as at BMW, mm -hmm. and then did a couple of projects for Toyota. Uh, so very much was a car guy. Uh, and <laughs> and you've seen them all, right? <laughs> exactly. And then uh, in 2010, uh, when uh, the entire mobility revolution was a little bit far away uh, and the automotive industry was really uh, hit rock bottom. I got a great yeah. offer from SAP to uh, join um, their office here in Palo Alto in Silicon Valley. No so cars anymore. Went... Exactly. So I went to SAP Enterprise Software and spent almost eight years there. Mm -hmm. uh, before uh, joining uh, Mercedes-Benz here to lead all their R&D activities in North America. And uh, I like to think of it as I left the automotive industry in 2010 to return to the mobility industry mm -hmm. in 2017. Amazing. Uh, a great career. I mean, uh, from, from, from a career perspective, I think something that a lot of people uh, strive for, um, especially the mix of seeing different companies uh, in, in, the, in the automotive sector and then actually moving to, of course, one of the biggest uh, software systems and then coming back again to Mercedes-Benz, which is actually, um, as probably a lot of people have seen, also going very deep into the whole technolo technology and uh, mobility field. So I think we, we can definitely expand on, on the thought here. Maybe to go a step back um, to your first um, academic career, because I think that will be very interesting before we go into um, the Mercedes-Benz uh, research and development part. Yeah. Why did you actually choose to to go to the States for, for undergraduate? Because I think a lot of students and a lot of young people think about actually moving, um, but they don't do it because of fear, because of maybe financial restrictions. What was your decision to actually go to the States and uh, pursue a career over there? Uh, so there have been a couple of uh, reasons. I think uh, personally, I always felt a certain affinity to the US. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, some of the, uh, you know, pushing the boundary, uh, you know, m m go west uh, kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> maybe in childhood uh, already, uh, or yeah, yeah, already as a kid. Okay. Uh, so did a couple of summer vacations with my parents uh, in the U.S. Uh, and uh, it it always. Uh, resonated with me as a kind of freedom uh, and uh, so I was interested in that. Uh, then at the time, uh, so that dates me a little more also, uh, there was in Bavaria you still had 13 years of schooling, right. uh, there was a compulsory military service uh, <laughs> and by actually doing it this way I was uh, able to perfectly legally avoid a 13th year of school and to avoid the military service. Uh, <laughs> so that kind of saved two years of my life. Uh, or in probably the minds of others really um, to, uh, stole myself of a great time and opportunity <laughs> to experience something else. Uh, but, but so that was uh, also an, an advantage of this, right? Uh, but I was very lucky, um, you know, got a scholarship. My parents also helped me some to make this possible. Mm -hmm. 
and then uh, yes, headed headed west uh, first to Missouri and then later on to California. Right, right, amazing. Okay, that's a very interesting thought because I think the the freedom part that you mentioned is something that a lot of people have um, have in common when they think about about the states. Of course, the American dream somehow arises from the topic of freedom and uh, the the technological the technological chances that we have in in 2019 as well. Um, maybe to to go a little deeper here as well. What have you experienced maybe from the states, especially in uh, in student life and post student life that is different in the States maybe compared to other countries that you have seen that actually has helped you build a career of interest, curiosity, and, and freedom that you that you are now able to do? Uh, I think the U.S. university system is a lot more like school by German standards uh -huh. than uh, like university. Uh, so your typical courses uh, are much smaller. And I did have courses of six students, I think at the very low end, uh, working directly with a professor. Uh, at the high end, maybe some lectures were about a hundred people okay. at the very most. Uh, but I think in undergrad, if I think back, probably the largest was more like 30 or 40 mm -hmm. students. Uh, and so the interaction that you have with your faculty uh, is much closer. Uh, yep. What I hear from a lot of friends who study in Germany, uh, that you, especially in your early bachelor's time, you mm -hmm. don't have that close-up interaction. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that, um, depending on how you view it, is a great uh, opportunity to interact with um, very smart and experienced people or uh, that uh, prevents you from growing up and keeps you, uh, allows you to stay a baby. Right. Uh, so I think it depends on how you, what you make of it. Uh, obviously, uh, me at the age of uh, 18, moving to an entire different continent and setting <laughs> up life. Uh, I say uh, it, it made me grow up quickly. Uh, in, in a positive way, uh, regardless of the schooling uh, being a little more like school. I understand. Perfect. Um, so that's also something that you would f more or less recommend to young people thinking about this, the, the opportunity to actually move, that they that they feel ready for it, but they they also need to feel ready for jumping into the cold water and uh, just experiencing life in a different way. Or what's something that you would give for what? Yes, I think one is uh, this just um, getting life arranged uh, in, in a new location, uh, mm -hmm. which I would argue with by now, the internet really is more prevalent. Yes, at the time there was a thing called dial-up. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you made, uh, you know, the, the funny noises uh, that it created uh, and so on, but it was really slow and there was no searching Craigslist or Googling <laughs> things to gain access. So I think setting up camp uh, has gotten a whole lot easier since then uh, mm -hmm. if you're moving internationally. Uh, but I think it's also a conscious decision uh, in these kind of different university systems, which one is for you? Mm -hmm. um, what kind of environment do you thrive more? Uh, so it's, it's important to make that as a conscious choice. Uh, another thing that I definitely would uh, say, the top U.S. schools are really, really top. Mm -hmm. But there is a whole lot that is not so good. And mm -hmm. so the spread among the quality of schools in the U.S. is far larger than the spread you would find in Germany. Uh, okay. so if you're, I think, planning to sort of just any school, it's much safer to throw a dart at a list of schools in Germany uh -huh. than dart a list of schools in the U.S. Okay, that's interesting. Um, of course, we have, like in Germany, it's quite regulated. Uh, but still, I think we have a lot of challenges here in the education system where we can actually or we, where we need to watch what, what the Ivy Leagues uh, in, in, in the States are doing. But maybe... It, um, and in MX, mm -hmm. 
on that, I'm also reminded, I think there is a bit of the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. <laughs> uh, in fact, I was just last night reading an article geared towards Americans mm -hmm. comparing engineering schools in the US and in Germany. Okay. And it was talking about how great it is for Americans to go to Germany to study engineering. <laughs> Okay, so there's always yeah, the grass is always greener on the other side. I totally agree. And I think uh, I think of course from from everything the standpoint from from Germans they always look for what the Americans are doing and 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 likewise uh, vice versa. Um, but maybe one last question regarding your studies. Maybe we can also jump into Stanford right here because also I have one more question that I would love to ask here as well. Um, if you would have like two certain classes that you would give to to students uh, that you have experienced at Stanford. What would those kind of courses look like if you if you would be the professor and you would actually teach students um, wherever that's going to be? Which two courses would you pick, and how would you actually target them? Uh, great question. Uh, so let me uh, tease apart your question a little bit. You you said if I was the professor, right? And okay. I think. Uh, a key part of that is of any class is actually the professor who teaches it. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, the design group at Stanford, uh, there was a discussion about uh, instead of requiring you've got to take a math course, you've got to take a structural course, you've got to take a design course, and so on, uh, shall we say you need to take one course from that professor, one course from that professor, one course from that professor. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's more the life lessons that you're learning from each of these professors uh, mm -hmm. that matter more. So I would, uh, instead of saying, which are the courses I would teach, I'd say, which are the professors you need to take a course from? <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, and in that regard, really, uh, three people come to mind um, mm -hmm. and so I'll, I'll expand on you, you gave me two options I'll, I'll give you three uh, Even better so uh, one is um, Bernie Roth Bernard Roth uh, he is um, like most people at Stanford very much a character uh, but I think he was well into his 70s when I first met him uh, he uh, goes to Burning Man every year, okay, uh, still cool. does, <laughs> uh, and he, he teaches uh, two courses. Uh, one is the most advanced kinematics course, uh, mm -hmm. so that is very much a hardcore mathematical course. Mm -hmm. And the other course called Designer in Society. And how Bernie described it is how to be an engineer and remain a human being. Love it. Uh, and so Which you, is fu you, funny. Have this, <laughs> you have this very characterful uh, professor teaching uh, the, these two different courses. Uh, I never had the guts to take his kinematics class, <laughs> uh, but I really enjoyed his designer in society um, course. Uh, he also uh, published a book called The Achievement Habit. Mm -hmm. uh, so for anybody who's interested, look for Bernard Roth, The Achievement Habit. Uh, and as Bernie puts it, uh, that is uh, his life lessons and what he teaches in that course uh, put in book form. Okay, interesting. Uh, then the uh, second professor uh, is uh, Larry Leifer. Uh, mm -hmm. who actually was uh, my PhD advisor. Uh, a, uh, one of the key phrases I have from Larry is, uh, you can't make people do, you should only let people do. Love it. Uh, so how, how do you get innovation? Uh, I've, I've learned a lot of lessons um, from him. Mm -hmm. uh, he was uh, definitely uh, is not a person to do a lot of writing. Uh, so, so there are no books I can recommend from him. 
but he's he's one of the most charismatic people I've known. Uh, he still teaches. Uh, unfortunately, by now, by now his hearing is completely gone. Uh, so conversations with him, uh, he never learned sign language. Neither have I. Okay. Uh, so a conversation with him by now, um, you have to just type out anything you say. Uh, but uh, I arrived at Stanford and uh, was very much, I'm going to go into automotive uh, and do control systems. And then I met Larry and that got me on this whole design track. Uh, so looking at life from a very different angle, uh, mm -hmm. more as I would put it. Uh, engineering engineers to be better engineers. That's amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. That's also where your what your dissertation is about, right? More or less. Exactly, exactly. And so Larry was my PhD advisor. Uh, we became very good friends. Um, and then the uh, third person uh, is actually the person uh, for whom I moved to Stanford. Uh, that is uh, Chris Gerdes. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris is very well known in uh, the automotive space. Uh, he's kind of written the Bible on autonomous driving. He's okay. also, um, was also under the Obama. Sorry? How is it called, uh, the automotive? Uh... Uh, it's, it's actually called autonomous driving. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, sitting right here, and uh, his name is Gerdes, G E R. D-E-S, Chris Gerdes. Uh, he also leads the Stanford Cars Lab and uh, was under Obama appointed as the uh, first chief innovation officer for NHTSA, the uh, National okay. Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that wrote the uh, draft legislation for autonomous driving on U.S. roads, uh, which is... Well. Now the basis um, for most of the coming legislation uh, that is allowing the U.S. to be such a front runner in the deployment of autonomous vehicles. And uh, Chris and I are still in regular contact. Uh, so those three, you really get a full spectrum of uh, personalities and topics. Um, and then, you know, as my elective, uh, I took uh, took golf, so uh, wouldn't wouldn't leave that out. Uh, nice, nice. So. What's your handicap? <laughs> I, you, you know, I, I I never took a much than courses, so uh, my <laughs> you, I, I'm not even counting handicap. Uh, <laughs> my, the, the times on a golf course uh, and a real golf course doing a real game can probably be counted on one hand. <laughs> uh, say, definitely I, not a professional golfer. Uh, my, um, my patience is probably uh, not, not suitable for the game, or I don't know if I've been scarred by my parents uh, <laughs> who uh, enjoyed golf and as a kid drafted a course when uh, I really didn't care to do the long walks. Uh, <laughs> it got better when golf cars came into the picture. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's never been quite my sport. So driving range was good. Uh, you know, you have 45 minutes of just hitting ball after ball and don't have to do a lot of walking in between. Right, right. That sounds cool. I also play golf, so maybe we have the time, if you're in Germany or if I'm in San Francisco, to at least hit the range. I uh, would love to be challenged or to challenge you and see what's What's going to happen yeah, there? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, I, I don't think I can challenge you much, but uh, let, let's try it. Uh, right. Let, let me know, and uh, it'll be a good excuse for me to give this another shot. Then maybe you can uh, con convince me that it's actually a lot more fun than I make it out to be. <laughs> okay, I'm definitely down for that. Um, but actually, uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna look for a time. <laughs> but thank you for the lineup. I really love it. I'm definitely gonna put every one of the professors in the show notes to at least give people the chance to check them out in whichever way possible, whether through uh, their books yeah. or. Um, or the stuff that they published or through videos um, if possible. So thank you for sharing. Really love the approach of actually seeing different professors in order to learn instead of just visiting courses um, because personality is, is going to give you growth. 
Um, maybe to go on a, go a step, a step forward, um, because we are, we want to talk about innovation and that's something that actually drives you. And um, if you like, I can also put your PhD into the show notes if uh, PhD works so people can actually check that out if they are interested. Um, innovation. All you need to see is the summary probably. Even though I've been told my dissertation is actually readable to the average person, uh, unlike most other dissertations. <laughs> People at least can try if they want to go into the physics of innovation and engineering to make engineering better. Um, so exactly. I think that's, that's an if interesting. If you've got any trouble falling asleep, this might help. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that one, but uh, <laughs> love that. Maybe you can actually uh, now, because we want to jump into the innovation part, Mercedes-Benz Research and Development, uh, you called it, uh, I think, um, MRDNA, um, if, I'm, if I'm correct. Um, MBRDNA, exactly. MBRDNA, I'm sorry. Um, so that's... No problem. It almost sounds like a company. <laughs> right, that's true. Maybe people should invent one. Um, but maybe you can give a little feedback on what, what you guys actually doing um, so people can understand how we actually want to deep dive into the innovation field. What's your, what's your daily work? What, what are you actually, what's your vision for MBDRNA? MB <laughs> Happy to. So uh, it's uh, MBRDNA is the research unit for Mercedes-Benz cars for all of North America. Mm -hmm. And I have the great pleasure to lead that, uh, which is everything from powertrain and e-drive uh, development and certification uh, through design, uh, design being exterior, interior, and digital design. And you kind of see the three of them merging. Uh, we've got displays now on the outside of a car. Uh, you see the inside of a car becoming more and more uh, display and not much else. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we've uh, got the autonomous driving uh, development uh, where we are uh, actually launching a public pilot uh, later this year uh, here mm -hmm. in San Jose. Uh, and uh, we've got key parts of our telematics development, uh, the, Entire data um, prediction as well as the UI software uh, comes out of here um, for MBUX. Uh, you, right, if you're following us, uh, that is the yeah. new touchscreen uh, interface in the new Mercedes vehicles uh, that really uh, changed the the industry. Um, TechCrunch called it uh, the highlight of last year's CES. Right. Uh, and uh, then we've also uh, got all the uh, cloud uh, development to both the operations for the existing one as well as the development and then operation for the future um, cloud platform. Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, it's about 800 people total uh, split headquartered here in Sunnyvale uh, in Silicon Valley where I am. Mm -hmm. uh, with offices in Seattle, where we do the cloud, uh, in Long Beach near LA and Michigan, where we do powertrain, e-drive, as well as the existing cloud, and then Carlsbad near San Diego, where our design center is. Uh, so covering the entire spectrum of uh, really automotive, uh, we don't have you know things like climate control and uh, the body <laughs> here. Uh, or suspension, but just about everything else. Uh, much of the future of automotive, uh, which we describe as CASE. I don't know if you've heard anyone okay. say that. CASE, CASE standing for Connected, Autonomous, Shared and Services, and Electric. Interesting. And I think that is where um, I, and as well as the larger company, see the future of our industry heading uh, with it. and that I think will be the large, major revolution probably for the industry even more so than uh, the advent of the assembly line. Uh, I, and I think it has a societal impact similar to the advent of the internet uh, if you think about what that might mean for mobility in cities. Uh, mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier you're always interested in how technology and society interact. And I think that is a very interesting uh, area there. 
Absolutely. Um, really love actually how you're approaching it because I think from from an objective standpoint, mobility is such an important topic to actually bring people from A to B that a lot of things that happen in between are often forgotten. And of course, there's a car that actually brings you from A to B, but what's really the technology that is driven behind that? And I think um, especially actually taking care of the big problems that we have in the auto or the big challenges we have in the automotive industry, which is cloud, which is something that a lot of people didn't believe that 10 years ago from uh, 10 years mm -hmm. ago, uh, this would actually be relevant. How does an organization like Mercedes-Benz, which is huge all over the world, um, make it possible to drive topics that are so far away from the topics that Mercedes has been doing maybe the last 50, 60 years? How is it possible to drive innovation in such new topics based out of San Francisco, of Palo Alto, and all the different areas? How do you manage uh, to bring the innovation to the field or to the society there? Uh It's not a simple task. <laughs> and, right. uh, if, if you've uh, seen the innovator's dilemma, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, Blake Christensen uh, famously describes the challenges. Right. And uh, you know, I mentioned before my uh, joining here at Mercedes, I was at SAP. And in fact, it was a very similar story. Uh, you've got a market leader that uh, has become or has optimized everything mm -hmm. for their existing business model. And they really do that well. And at the same time, their entire industry is changing. And mm -hmm. what's used to be your profit driver suddenly becomes your cost driver. Right. And How do you change that? And, that? and that requires not only your processes, your delivery channels to change, but that requires your employee mindset to change and your customer mindset mm -hmm. to change. And all of that, you still you need to invest in that future and get ready for it, but you need to be careful not to erode the current market because if you do that, then your existing sales break away and you run into a cash flow problem uh, before you can actually create that future. Uh -huh. uh, so being in that um, kind of tension area is, is a similar challenge um, regardless at what company you're at. And um, so regardless of which company, uh, I always find conversation being the most important tool uh -huh. uh, because I don't have the answers, uh, but I've got ideas. Right. Other people don't necessarily have all answers, but they've got ideas. And so you put these things together uh, you, and uh, by collectively uh, exchanging ideas, sharing perspectives, Uh, you take the best shot you can uh, to um, drive into that future. And there's going to be successes and be failures. And the most important piece is to uh, not crucify those who fail, but rather celebrate them. Uh, because failure really needs to be a learning opportunity for everyone. And if as an organization, you share when something went wrong, uh, I said not to crucify the people, but so that everybody knows this, then you actually have a chance of preventing the organization from making that mistake again. Uh, what a lot of us tend to be um, embarrassed of a mistake or something, and then you don't talk about it. And that in my view is the worst thing you can do because that means everybody else is going to make the same mistake again. Right. Failure is uh, an amazing topic that you cover, I think, and I would love to, to ask one more question to, to deep dive here. Um, failure, of course, is something that a lot of people actually want to have to, to progress. Still, I think, if I believe, especially in the European market, we still don't have 
a lot of people actually believing in failure. How mm. how do you think, how do you make that change? Is that something that needs to come from the top, from the CEO like you are? Or do you think that's uh, that actually needs patience and an intercultural change within the company that needs to come from the bottom? How's your 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 approach to actually deliver failure in order to progress? How do you make that into the people's mind? The failure is an interesting topic. And if you ask me what is the one thing that makes Silicon Valley be Silicon Valley and allows these continuous successes, mm -hmm. I would say it is the attitude towards failure. And uh, if you, uh, whether you look at uh, Steve Jobs and his successes, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, do you uh, remember the Apple Newton? Uh, I of course I've seen it, but I've, I'm not not directly. Let's see, let's say it that way. It it ticked, right? Right. right. Steve was the one who said, um, "Had we not done the Newton, we wouldn't have seen the iPhone coming." Mm -hmm. And that really changed the company. Uh, similarly, uh, my view is uh, if you hear um, go to a VC and they ask you, "So what have you done before?" Oh yeah, I've started three companies. Okay, and where they are now? Uh, well, they all don't exist anymore. <laughs> the response is, okay, good. The likelihood that you succeed the next time is higher because you've learned the important lessons from those. Right. Uh, if, you, if you look at how the legal system is set up uh, in Europe versus the US, it, the U.S. system allows a lot more failure. Um, you're mm. you're going to get sued no matter what, uh, but allows that experimentation. And then if you look at uh, how U.S. was created, uh, the original pilgrims that came over, uh, or people leaving Europe, mm -hmm. who were those? It was either the really optimistic people <laughs> Uh, or the really bad people. <laughs> right. Uh, in, in both cases, people not afraid of failing. I mean, this country was started by crazy optimists. I mean, why, why would you leave Europe, go on this, you know, sailing ship that you don't know if you're going to ever arrive at the other end, uh, and then even worse so, trek across the desert and mountain ranges as you're moving west across the country. And mm -hmm. I think that is uh, still in the culture. And uh, I d describe, I think, by natural selection, the further west you go in the U.S., and that might be why Silicon Valley really exists in California. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it is where, where only those really crazy ones are really not <laughs> afraid of failing. Uh, kind of gathered, uh, and and I think that is that is very, very much at the core. And so, back to your question, uh, what can we do? I think it's uh, as leaders we have a responsibility to be a role model, mm -hmm. and and it's also a way of how do we manage. It. Yes, there are things that get screwed up on my team. Do I go in and uh, you know? use the word bitch somebody out in front of the whole team? Uh -huh. No. Uh, I think for that person, they got enough pain um, for something going wrong. I, I don't need to put salt in their wounds. Right. Instead, what I go at it and say is, look, here's what happened. Here's what the outcome was. This is not what we would like the outcome to be again. How can we prevent that from happening again? What did we learn from it? And then share those lessons learned. Uh, I mean, quite common is even you've got a project that had been canceled, you still pay the participants a bonus for it. Right. Uh, and in my view, uh, any project i rather kill today than tomorrow. Because the, the moment that I lost faith in it, it's I'm better off 
putting those resources onto something that I actually believe in right. to do so today than to let them continue just so they finished a project, just so they uh, stuck to a plan, uh, just so they kept a commitment. Uh, if the commitment is the wrong commitment, then let's change it. And I think that is that openness to pivot, as we like to call it in the Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a huge thing. And whether you're, you're a company of many people changing your business model, whether you're a project team of 10, or whether you're an individual person, I think that openness to take insights and to change course, that is absolutely critical um, to success. And uh, then you don't talk about failure, you instead talk about adjustments. And I think people like to uh, talk more about their insights gained and the consequences they've taken from that uh, mm -hmm. than their failure. Absolutely amazing. I think uh, there were lots of points that actually touch different uh, different elements uh, from a leadership perspective. I think actually empowering people to learn from failure and actually uh, share the lessons learned is something that makes leadership fantastic and and should be should be used in in several companies again and maybe has been has been actually uh, been awakening in the last uh, last five to ten years especially in the valley if i observe it from from germany here i can awfully observe awfully observe um, from from an objective standpoint but i think uh, seeing actually people evolve in the positioning that they have is something that a lot of leaders don't actually manage or they are not able to manage it since you are also an expert of agile prototyping, I think that's somehow a way, a smart way of actually empowering people to, to have an idea and to execute on it. And on the other side, it's something that a lot of people struggle on to actually have an agile prototyping process in order to drive innovation. What is something that you would give forward to companies, to leaders in a company, um, and maybe also to startups that actually need to prototype? that have the question of how do we make it possible to prototype products that end, that bring us to the end consumer and still give people the the possibility to empower themselves during the project how do you how do you manage that so what is that the essence of agile the essence of agile is short short cycles mm -hmm. and the ability to pivot very frequently and uh, to me, it's simply a form of risk diversification. So <laughs> you want to build in as many opportunities to reconsider your plan, to, to incorporate your most recent learnings, mm -hmm. and to review, are you still on the right course? I mean, you. you you're doing that if you're navigating. I mean, okay, now everybody's got GPS, but in days when we <laughs> use maps, yeah, you continuously compare is the road that you're on the one you want to be on the map. And if you feel like you veered <laughs> off, uh, you make a turn or even a U-turn to get back on. Or you uh, need to find where you are on the map. That's the other option. <laughs> that, that, that also. <laughs> uh, and uh, if I look at... Um, you know, do, especially on software, uh, there's really two ways. One is, uh, and the biggest challenge in software development is dependency management. Mm -hmm. And that is, you're working on one part of the code, I'm working on another part of the code. We bring the two together at the end, and we hope everything still works. Now, the longer your cycle gets, the more dependencies you have. Uh, totally and, and, and that means you got to do more and more planning. Mm -hmm. And you more build and more up strategy. more and more overhead. And you build up more and more likelihood that something goes wrong. You mm -hmm. don't, and as that cycle gets longer, you've forgotten what you actually changed in the code and then uh, it becomes even harder to fix it. Right. So the problem only gets worse. Uh, it, take a look at the other end. If you're, uh, you know, for those of you a little bit into mathematics, uh, think of a limit function. Mm 
if you make your increment infinitesimally small, you're actually getting to zero dependencies. Right. And so if I look at companies like Facebook, they're doing thousands of little releases every day. And they're, every developer works on the live code. Mm -hmm. And if I am uh, break something, I know I've only got to go back a few hours. <laughs> uh, there is, is uh, actually a guy who presented this very nicely uh, named Chuck Rossi, uh, mm -hmm. R-O-S-S-I. Uh, and Chuck, he was at VMware, at Google, uh, most recently at Facebook, he just uh, left there. Uh, but Chuck built up the uh, release engineering organization there. Uh, and uh, apart from him being a very funny guy, uh, he he also uh, he, he gave a couple of talks where he describes that system. And and when when I met him, that really uh, got me to understand the power of agile development. And that is make things as small as you can, so that way you minimize your dependencies and you can pivot as quickly as you can. Uh, and that is to me uh, the essence of agile prototyping. You know, being in the car industry, um, we can quickly think that a prototype means million dollar uh, investment or more uh -huh. to build a prototype vehicle. Uh, and really the question is, what is the essence of what you're trying to figure out? Uh, at Stanford, we use the term critical function prototype. Okay. And what that means was the question, what is the one thing that if it breaks, takes down your entire project? Mm -hmm. And most companies, if we start a new project, we can create a timeline and uh, a project plan, and then we start executing on that. Mm -hmm. Well, Natural human tendency is you do what you know. So you actually take down the smallest hurdle first. Uh, and uh, the things that you don't know yet, well, you kind of leave those till the end because you're discovering those along the way. <laughs> and as a result, you often find yourself stuck in this 80-20 rule uh, where you think you've completed 80% of the project, but really 80% of the difficult part is still left. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, uh, if anyone is interested, uh, if you look at X, uh, Alphabet X, or used to be Google X, mm -hmm. and their innovation process, they actually tackle it from the opposite end. Uh, and that is, I've got an idea, and you tell me why you think that's not going to work. Makes sense. What's your natural tendency? Well, you're going to take the thing that is most likely to break my idea. Mm -hmm. And then I need to prove you that I can overcome that. And then you're going to throw another problem at me. And, and I'm going to go... I think I can overcome that. And what happens is you're actually starting with the biggest hurdle first and progressively getting smaller hurdles compared to most companies' innovation approach, which tends to be, I start with the smallest hurdle first so I can show progress very fast, mm -hmm. impress management. Uh, maybe by the time I get to the really big hurdles, I've already been promoted and it's no longer my problem. Love it. Uh, that's such such a big topic, I think. Um, but I, I've, I've actually taken a bunch from it, uh, especially critical f function prototyping, really seeing what's actually the breaking tipping point that actually uh, allows the product to be successful or not. Really love it. I'm definitely going to put all the stuff in the show notes as well, especially the Alphabet X innovation process. And I think a lot of listeners have actually taken 
lots of information from it, and I think uh, that's also what actually makes you special uh, in regards to the develop product development at your company over there, um, especially at Mercedes-Benz research, uh, research and Development. Maybe if you have two or five more, five more minutes, I would ask a couple of final questions before we, before we head yeah. off. Um, yeah. Really um, appreciate it actually to talk about the innovation field. Maybe now two final questions because people are always interested in resources. What's one book um, that you would recommend to the listeners that has actually helped you uh, in the fields that you are interested in that you would want to share? Maybe a book that you have gifted a lot. A uh, book that I've gifted a lot. Uh, the uh, most recent um, one that I gifted, I gave uh, my directs for uh, Christmas was um, On Bullshit by Harry Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, and and that is, uh, it's an easy, quick read. I don't know if you've seen it. I actually uh, recently even saw it in Frankfurt Airport uh, featured in the bookstore. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, sort of an academic discourse uh, on how we have a tendency to just bullshit ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, written very elegantly uh, so it's, <laughs> it's definitely a fun fun light evening read perfect we'll put that in the show notes um how do you keep your 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 to-dos managed what's what's what are your systems what are your to-do tools that you use to keep everything in relation if you've got a good solution let me know because it's mostly luck right now <laughs> use pen and paper or a tool or Pen and paper, posted, uh, multiple tools. Uh, it's yeah, I, I always admire those who are good at this. It's it's a difficult task. That's the reason why I'm asking. <laughs> um, that's the last question, Philip. Maybe before we head off, what's something that actually, or what's driving you every day to go to work to actually fulfill the vision that you do at your company, but also at with your employees? What's something that drives you personally? Uh, lifelong two things uh one is the colleagues who i work with and uh who i'm entrusted to lead uh, i very much believe uh that that leadership is not a privilege or a right but an obligation mm -hmm. uh and uh, so, so that those are the people who uh, get me excited uh, about getting up in the morning uh, and I see my job as making their life easier. Why do I do it? Mm -hmm. I've got uh, two little daughters and uh, I see a responsibility um, not to just bring them up into being good human beings, but to actually give them a good world to live in uh, because all the effort into educating them uh, is um, going to be useless if they're going to be in a world where you, they don't want to live in. Absolutely. Loving last words. Thank you, Philip, for your time. Thanks for the fantastic conversation and um, really took a lot away from it, uh, especially seeing into your different touch points that you have in your job, but also in your private life. Thanks for your time. Really appreciating it. Welcome. Thank you, Max. Thank you for listening. I really appreciated it. Um, just a short reminder, in case you really liked the interview, I would love to have a review in my inbox um, <laughs> so you can write a little, little short review in the iTunes podcasting field that would help a lot um, and um, if you have any interest in contacting us let me know we are available on Twitter LinkedIn and other channels and I would appreciate hearing from you otherwise I hope we'll see you next time bye bye